I'm Bonnie Harrison, and this is The Detail's Long Read. This week, a story from North and South Magazine's June issue called Homeward Bound. It's about the return of human remains from museums around the world to Moriori in the Chatham Islands. It's written by Veronica Maduna. One of the people she talks to is a powerful voice in reclaiming Moriori culture, Maui Solomon. And at the end of this story... The detail's Alexia Russell talks to him too about his life's work. This is Homeward Bound by Veronica Maduna. In a sacred resting place at Te Papa Tongarewa, hundreds of Moriori ancestral remains are waiting to make their final journey back home to Re Kohu, the main island in the windswept Chatham Islands group, some 800 kilometres east of New Zealand. Koimi Chuckett have been arriving in New Zealand over the past year from colonial collections held in museums overseas and universities in New Zealand as part of a long-running effort to repatriate skeletal remains back to their rightful place with their people. Like other colonised countries, New Zealand has a painful and shameful history of stolen Moriori and Māori remains – dug up unceremoniously and traded as scientific objects and curiosities by colonial bone collectors and notorious grave robbers, serving the contemporaneous thinking that both were inferior people and dying out. Moriori were considered near extinct, and koimi were taken in such large numbers that the tribe may represent the most collected people in the Pacific. Bringing the remains home is the ultimate honouring of these Karapuna ancestors in Tare Moriori for Maui Solomon, the tribe's chief negotiator and lifelong advocate of the correct telling of Moriori history and the reclaiming of culture. Knowing as I do the tragic history of what happened to my ancestors, he says, and the circumstances which resulted in the unlawful removal from Rekohu all those years ago, helping to bring them home is one of the most important things this generation of Moriori can do. In the largest single repatriation of Moriori remains to date, more than a hundred ancestors were returned by London's Natural History Museum last July. Solomon travelled to London to receive them and to meet the curators who'd been caring for them. None of them are responsible for our ancestors leaving our shores, he says. What's important to me is that they played a vital and heartwarming role in their return to their proper home. It's hard to reconstruct the feeling at the time because it's such a visceral and experiential thing. It was pretty deep and special to be part of that, he says. For Susan Thorpe, a researcher with Te Papa's repatriation team Karanga Aotearoa and Solomon's wife, the London visit was the culmination of many years of work. The London repatriation started in 2007, she says. When I travelled there to represent Karanga Aotearoa and worked with the staff to begin to examine their accession records, it was a collation of records from museums all around Britain. Many of the koimi were not collected by the Natural History Museum itself, but they became the repository. 
Thorpe could trace the remains to the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, Oxford University, the University College London and private collections, from where they were moved to the Natural History Museum for safekeeping after the Blitz bombings of London during World War II. They were never displayed there and remained in storage for decades, until the UK introduced a new law to ease the transfer of human remains. Thorpe says, now, all over the world, and particularly in Germany, there's a great deal of not just interest and enthusiasm, but a real, ethical, reciprocal response to return. It's beautiful to be part of that, she says. One trail of how these remains left New Zealand leads to Henry Devonish Skinner, who grew up in Taranaki during the 1890s and often joined his father combing the beaches for artefacts. He volunteered to go to war in 1914, fighting in Gallipoli, and later enrolled at Cambridge University to study Moriori material culture in British museums. After he returned to New Zealand in 1918, the first person in Australasia to be appointed lecturer in anthropology, he visited the Chatham Islands to follow his pre-war research interests, challenging the then orthodox argument that Moriori were descended from a Melanesian people. He argued they are Polynesian. According to his Dictionary of New Zealand biography entry, Skinner recognised the importance of archaeological evidence, but disliked fieldwork and employed others to carry out excavations. Domestic museums started emerging during the 1860s, says Thorpe. She says they were connecting with Europe, particularly Britain and Austria, to grow collections of New Zealand material overseas, and there was a huge interest in moor bones. Moor became almost a kind of inter-museum currency, and so you've got lots of letters and diary notes saying, thank you for that moor skeleton, and by the way, we've got a need for some South Sea Islanders' skulls. Can you assist with it? And of course, they did. Despite his contribution to the trade of Moriori remains, Thorpe doesn't want to paint Skinner in a bad light. He did a tremendous amount to dispel mythology about Moriori, but he was a man of his time as well, she says. He didn't go to Rekohu to take human remains, but when working in archaeological sites that had become exposed, it was typical archaeological practice, if remains were uncovered, to add them to the archaeological collections. At the same reconciliation ceremony Te Papa held to welcome Karapuna Moriori from London, some 200 remains were returned from several museums in New Zealand and the University of Otago's anatomy collection. The latter goes back to John Halliday Scott, Professor of Anatomy from 1877 and the first Dean of the Medical School from 1891. Scott was a medical professor, but his research was physical anthropology. It consisted mainly of the measurements of skulls of people from different populations for the justification of the white man's status at the top of the ladder, says Otago bioarchaeologist Hallie Buckley, who attended the ceremony to issue an apology. She says... He and his colleagues were responsible for a lot of the collecting, and we have evidence from our records of it beginning around 1876 and going right through to 1945. The intentions and the manner in which these remains were collected and how research was conducted 
and how these people were described to us today is absolutely abhorrent, she says. Buckley says it's important that we acknowledge that our institutions had a role, and I firmly believe that we must account for our professional ancestors' conduct. Much has changed since then. Buckley's work is now recognised particularly for her respectful study of remains, which treats them as a person whose life story she aims to tell, always working alongside the community to which they belong. Yes, you're righting wrongs, but you are also giving them their family back, she says. Some moriori in the anatomy collection are represented only by a single bone. For a few, there are complete skeletons. With permission and encouragement from the Hokotihi Moriori Trust, Buckley worked to reconstruct a biological biography for each of them to return not only their remains, but their stories as well. From the bones, she could tell whether the ancestors were male or female and what age they were. The teeth tell a story about the types of foods they were eating, oral diseases they may have had, and whether they might have suffered from any sort of stress during childhood. Generally, Buckley found people were healthy and very strong, with bones showing evidence of strenuous activity, suggesting they were carrying or dragging heavy weights. Many people grew old, and those who suffered fractures received community care for weeks to rest and heal. Their teeth show wear that suggest they may have used them as a tool, likely to process plant fibres or animal skins. The humanity of these people was brought back to us through this beautiful work, says Thorpe. Moriori were extremely fine and talented weavers. They made sophisticated fishing nets and gear. They wove purse nets, baskets, garments and mats, amongst other things. We shouldn't necessarily assume that toothwear is associated only with food. It's very common in other cultures around the world where the wearing of skins is necessary for warmth and fibres are used for weaving. Buckley also found that some people suffered from anemia and scurvy as children, suggesting seasonal dietary shortages of iron and vitamin C. And there is some bone evidence of tuberculosis, and possibly leprosy. The Trust didn't want to carry out invasive analysis of the remains, but agreed to explore genetic traces of the bacteria that cause these diseases. It was always assumed that tuberculosis was introduced by Pākehā, says Buckley, and they did indeed introduce highly virulent strains to New Zealand, but not on Rekohu, which were devastating to Māori and Moriori and are still a problem today. But Terangi Hiroa, also known as Sir Peter Buck, always argued that from oral histories, tuberculosis was present pre-Pākehā. I have seen skeletal evidence of tuberculosis among pre-European kōiwi tangata and some of the karapuna, and we want to see if this could be closely related to tuberculosis that is carried by pinnipeds, seals and sea lions, she says. But all will depend on which research the Trust wants to pursue further. No anthropological research on human remains has any validity unless it's done with the knowledge and the support of the community and to answer community-driven questions, Buckley says. Moriori, above all else, 
are a people of peace. For Maui Solomon, the repatriations are part of a wider recovery of culture, language and recognition, and the debunking of long-lived myths. He says, Five or six generations of New Zealanders have been taught that Moriori were weak and inferior people who occupied New Zealand and got driven out to the Chathams by the later, more aggressive Māori and then got dealt to and were extinct. And that was what's been taught in national schools. All we're asking now is to have the truth taught, he says. The true story is of a Polynesian people settling on Rekohu and other islands in the group almost a millennium ago and developing an egalitarian society which outlawed warfare and killing. This pacifism is pivotal to the historical injustices Moriori experienced, including what Solomon describes as genocide following the arrival of two iwi, Ngāti Mutunga and Ngāti Tama, late in 1835. He says, We maintained our mana by upholding and adhering to the custom of non-violence and welcoming and looking after these invaders. Our ancestors didn't know that they were invading and had come to take over the land. They just saw people who were in need, who were sick, unwell from this voyage, and looked after them. Solomon refers to a letter written in 1862 by Moriori leader Hirawana Tapu telling Governor Sir George Grey that, quote, The Māori hid their true intentions from us. It wasn't until several weeks later that they began to takahi the land, killing and enslaving our people as they went. The Crown knew what was happening, Solomon says. You had people like Bishop Selwyn, who was there in the early 1840s and reporting back, saying there's gross slaughter and slavery and injustice happening on the island. Other missionaries were reporting the same thing, but out of sight, out of mind, he says. The killings also aided colonial collectors. Solomon says, After the genocide of the early 19th century, many of those human remains were just left scattered around. The thought of having suffered the degradation of being killed and eaten then to be removed offshore and stuck in some foreign institution? How many indignities can a human being endure, says Solomon. Moriori gathered from the Chathams and throughout Aotearoa to attend the solemn repatriation ceremony. One of the orators was Kiwa Hammond, who spoke in both Te Reo Māori and Tare Moriori, reciting ancient incantations likely familiar to the ancestors whose remains were coming home. Reviving the Moriori language is a challenge. There are no recordings, only descriptions of how it was spoken. For Hammond, the challenge is also personal, as he only learned of his Moriori roots 25 years ago. He says, We are recognised as being among quite a few families called the Lost Voices, because, for whatever reason, our karapuna were removed from Rekohu, and we don't have a strong hokopapa, or whakapapa i te reo Māori, connection to those who remained on the island. There are a lot of families around the country who have a similar story, he says. For this reason, Hammond spoke, but did not carry any of the boxes containing ancestral bones. Our purpose here is to carry the living people, our role is to revive and revitalise our rongo, or songs, and our karaki, he says. Since the large repatriation, 
Moriori remains have returned from the Natural History Museum in Vienna from collections traded by Hochstetter and Andreas Reischek, arguably the most infamous gravedigger, who had no qualms breaking tapu knowingly. In June this year, more remains will be returned by seven institutions in Germany. I have committed my life to having the truth about Moriori told and to have justice for Moriori, Maui Solomon says. I'll probably go to my grave not seeing that justice really has been done, but we've made a lot of progress. Eventually, in two or three years, all Karapuna will embark on the final leg of their long journey home to be laid to rest in a memorial site. Solomon says, when we take them back to the island, eventually there'll be close to 600 koimi to be returned. And that's going to be a huge occasion, not just for Moriori, but for the whole island. That was Homeward Bound. Now, here's Alexia Russell with Maui Solomon. Maui Solomon, welcome back to The Detail. Kia oranga. nice to be here. <laughs> now, this must be a major milestone for you, another major milestone, and your fight for the Moriori culture. I mean, you've had historic myths righted under your treaty settlement three years ago, and now you're bringing your ancestors back. But you say you're not finished. Well, you know, bringing our karapuna home, our koimi, chuck it from both um, local museums and international institutions, I think is one of the most important things we can do because, you know, it's another way of remembering and honouring our, our people um, whose um, bodily remains were um, unceremoniously dug up and removed and taken and sold off to overseas institutions. And there they sat for over 100 years. So um, it's been a probably a 20-year process of negotiations with both local Aotearoa New Zealand institutions and overseas institutions. And I just want to acknowledge my wife, Susan Thorpe, who's really been at the forefront of that work uh, through her involvement predominantly with the Papa Tongarua, but also with Hokutehi Moriri Trust. And um, even as we speak, there's some more of our koimi chakadas has just been returned to the country from Germany. Do you know where there are still places in the world that there are more, that, you know, where more repatriation is required? Yes, there are. There's um, various places uh, overseas, mostly in Europe, um, and and that's a matter of ongoing uh, negotiations with the predominantly between Te Papa um, and those institutions in Europe. Um, there may well be others in, in the UK and in the United States. Um, so we, we expect that over time. And I guess as these institutions become more enlightened and willing to repatriate, um, you know, our, our, our ancestral remains, um, these things will come to light. I also want to acknowledge, you know, the awesome mahi that uh, Te Papa and its um, staff both here and overseas, have been doing um, over this period. Their commitment to this kaupapa is really second to none. It's been fantastic. They've been world leaders in setting the standard for uh, repatriation of, of human remains, Māori and Moriori. And, and I think they've lit the, the runway for, for other Indigenous peoples and other cultures and other countries to engage with their institutions and also had a huge impact on 
um, the leaders within those institutions, you know, their attitude, their grace, their dignity, and the monarchy that I've shown, the, the excellent standard of research. And I've seen this firsthand. You know, I've seen, I've been, been fortunate enough to, to attend a couple of repatriations um, uh, in Europe over the years. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fantastic to see that um, directors of museums, for example, the director of the Institute of Charity in, in, um, in Berlin, you know, he um, he just couldn't speak highly enough of the work that um, Te Papa had been doing. And actually, he apologised to Moriori. That's the first real apology we've had um, from, you know, an institution that's been holding our, our it for so long. Forty years of advocacy. I feel like you've achieved so much, but you you obviously feel you've got a long way to go. Well, look, I'm, I, I, don't want to sound, I hope I don't sound too pessimistic. <laughs> um, I, I guess I'm always looking over the horizon at the next, um, you know, what's what's on the horizon. But it is also important, I think, to just to pause and, and reflect on, on what has been achieved um, for Moriori. And, um, you know, when I started out 40 years ago, we, we weren't recognised as a people. We had no resources we had no land, um, had no marae, and and today we can proudly say that you know we've we've put our hand in our own pocket and borrowed money and brought back land. This is before the treaty settlement. We had about seventy million dollars worth of assets prior to settlement, post settlement. You know we're probably close, including land that's coming back, um, probably close to a hundred million dollar organisation. Um, and we've got a beautiful marae. We employ about a dozen people. We, uh, you know, we're in the fishing um, industry, farming, um, some tourism, and and um, you know, we've got a lot of cultural development. The most important of which is is the revival of Tari and Moriori, which is being led by um, Kiwa Hammond, who who led our um, Ope overseas recently to to bring the Karapuna back back home. So you're talking so, about yeah, look, you're talking the, about the language. Yes, the language. Mm. Yeah, Tari Let me ask you about that because on the surface it's very similar to Maori, but there are differences. Like for example, there is a C in your alphabet, which you don't see in Maori. Um, how do you yes. you know go about reviving a language when the base of knowledge is so small? Mm, mm. No, good question. And and as I said, the the last fluent speaker of Moriori died around 1900, 1902. So, uh, and there are no recordings of the language, but there was, we're fortunate in the sense that a lot was written down, particularly by um, Hirawana Tapu, who was the leader for Moriori in the 19th, throughout the 19th century. Um, and he was the one who wrote the 131 page petition to Governor Gray in 1862. And in collaboration with um, one of the settlers down here, Alexander Shand, uh, he compiled a book um, of the um, traditions, the karaki, the prayers, the rungo, the songs, uh, and the stories of Moriori that, that remained at that time, and that's about 1890, and he went around and consulted with the surviving elders at that time. So there, there's, you know, I'd say 70% probably, 60% was lost, but there was a lot 
that was uh, written down thanks to Tapu and Shand, um, and and is now um, in archives and publications, and some is in private archives. So we can draw on those on that base of information to help reconstruct the language. It's it's a huge task, but it's been done in other countries. Uh, Aboriginal cultures are doing that today. Um, it's been done by the Celts in in Wales and, and in Ireland. The Gaelic language, um, you know, Kohangareo. They they at least there was a much stronger foundation for Te Reo Māori to reconstruct. So, um, as I say, we're fortunate we, we've got a fluent speaker of Te Reo Māori and and Kiwa, but he's also dedicating himself to to learning in Māori. Moriori and and running workshops and online webinars and things like that and for me that's probably the most important um, thing that can happen going forward is to to re learn real you know relearn our there um, and our karaki and our rongo because you know it's one thing having this the, the hardware you know all of the beautiful marae and and um, so forth and so on but unless you have the software to go with that. Um, it's pretty meaningless. It's just a, a set of kind of assets and resources. Um, so that's that's a real challenge that we face as a, as a people now. And once there are, you know, a dozen or two dozen people who can stand around, you know, kapoa rangi tokona in the, the centre piece of our, our kupinga marae on rekohu and, and recite their own rongo, their karaki, and to speak in tāri moriuri, then I'll, I'll die a happy man. And, and are those people on the horizon? Are there people who are really engaged with this revival process? Yes, I think there are. Um, and, um, you know, that's, but that's a work in pro- progress. Um, and th- those people will continue to come to the fore. But I, it's going to be a long and difficult journey. And, and it's going, like anything, you, you need to have champions of these things. <laughs> That was Maui Solomon, and the story read by Bonnie Harrison was Homeward Bound, from North and South, June issue, written by Veronica Maduna. Thanks to the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with another long read. Tau Atura Mironga. Mironga.